Acts 2, starting in verse 37, we're picking up after Peter's sermon and seeing the response and the results that followed from it. Verse 37, now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God for having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Oh, Lord Jesus, we meet in your name today on this day, your day, the Lord's day. We thank you that you are risen, that you're reigning. We thank you for your great promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you for this day on Pentecost, some almost 2,000 years ago, where you built your church quickly and strongly. And Lord, you are still at it today. Would you build up this church as you build your church? Lord, build us up in strength. Build it as you add to it. May it be so for your namesake. Amen. You could be seated. Well, DNA. DNA is a crazy thing. That there's a molecule in every living creature that carries all the genetic blueprints. Sure, we're taught when we're young as human beings, we're taught things about how to live and what to do. That's no doubt part of who we are. We are in some ways products of our environment. We're certainly more than simply the playing out of our genetic codes. But no one can doubt the power and the mystery and the importance of DNA. God has put something within each of us that in many ways does make us who we are. How do we explain what took place, what we just read here in Acts 2? Why did they do what they did? We could rightly say what took place here is simply what they had caught and been taught from Jesus. Jesus taught them to pray and showed them to pray. Jesus showed them that the making of disciples is done together. The Lord Jesus had taught them how to love one another and taught them what love is. It's sacrifice and and care and other-mindedness. They had caught and taught so much from Jesus. And in some ways, it's just being played out here in the book of Acts. And yet, the forming of this first Christian church, 
And the habits and commitments of this church are described to us here by Luke, the author of Acts, in a way that makes them seem instinctual or natural, like Jesus' DNA or Holy Spirit DNA has been planted within and it's now doing its thing. Apart from that DNA, we might imagine that 3,000 are converted to Jesus and then those apostles say, what do we do now? What's next? He's been giving us specific instructions like you'll be my witnesses and wait here until the spirit comes and what do we do? I I can imagine Peter at a dry erase board saying, guys, let's just get our heads together. I'm swimming right now, 3,000? I don't know how we're gonna manage that, do you? Jesus taught a lot of stuff. Maybe we should start prioritizing here. What, What do we do? Well, if something like that happened, it's not recorded for us here by Luke. Luke tells us of the birth of the first Christian church and the habits of that church in the most natural way, like it just happened, like they all knew just what to do, almost like there's a DNA code for it. And yet, if I can steer us back in the other direction one more time, it didn't just happen. Not if we take those words seriously in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to this. It took effort, it took work, it took commitment. DNA might mean that a person is coordinated or strong or athletic, but that doesn't mean that person will be an athlete. It takes work and devotion and effort. So what is the church to be and, and to do? Well, this is caught and taught from Jesus. This is also just DNA. It's Holy Spirit implanted DNA. And yet, we can't trust ourselves or our instincts alone. We don't say, well, if it feels right, that's what we do in the church. No, we must devote ourselves to what we see in the Bible. Now, that's where we're headed in our study of this passage in Acts chapter 2 today. But let's first back up a bit and retrace our steps from last week. Remember, starting in verse 37, which I I just read, we saw the pathway into the church. That's my first of four points this morning. The pathway into the church. Remember, a lot has happened on this day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came in that upper room. They saw tongues of fire. They began praising God in languages that they hadn't previously learned. It was a miracle. And those around them know it's a miracle. We're hearing them in our native tongue, not Aramaic or, or, or Hebrew or, or Greek. They say, what does this mean? And so Peter explains. That's the first part of the pathway into the church. Proclamation. Peter explaining from the scriptures. He uses the Old Testament scriptures to say that a new age has dawned because Messiah has come. And yes, he was rejected. And that shows just how wicked humanity is. They crucified the righteous son of God. But he explains that Jesus' death was God's plan all along. And that shows what a loving, kind, and patient and saving God we have. Jesus' death was no defeat. 
proof of that is in the resurrection. He's living and he reigns on high. We know he reigns because he was not just resurrected, but ascended. He exalted to heaven and now sits at God's right hand. We know that he reigns in heaven, not just because we saw him go up or what we can infer from Old Testament scriptures pointing to him, but because he sent the Holy Spirit. That's a mark of his authority in this world to do his, his work and, and for his people to be about his bidding in his divine power. We saw last week that part of the pathway into the church is a proper response of conviction. They were cut to the heart when they heard this. They asked, what must we do? And Peter preaches repentance. Repentance is a necessary part of the pathway into the church. It says, repent and be baptized. We said last week, repentance and faith go together. This is shorthand. Peter is implying certain things here. He's reducing things to the headlines, we could say. Or maybe Luke, as he summarizes Peter's longer sermon, is reducing things to the headlines. Repent, change, have sorrow, recognition of guilt, remorse, but turn to God in faith for salvation. Repent and be baptized, he says. Not because baptism is required for salvation or necessarily part of the pathway into salvation. It doesn't save. Again, he's reducing things to the headlines. In baptism, portrays so much. It portrays our need. It portrays our hope. It portrays what we trust in. It's a portrait of the gospel. And so you can't trust in baptism. That's like a dog who looks at a finger that's pointing instead of the thing to which the finger points. Dogs do that, right? They, they, they don't know that you're pointing. They don't get that. They don't see a dotted line from your finger to a thing. Baptism points. It doesn't save. Jesus saves. Who is to be baptized then? Well, those who are saved. Those who were saved here were baptized. I'm going to say that a couple of different ways. Here's the first. Those who were saved were baptized. Other than the thief on the cross, there is no record of anyone in the New Testament putting saving faith in Jesus and not being baptized. It's what you do. 3,000 people believed and 3,000 people were baptized. Could you imagine Peter getting up and giving the report after the altar call? He says, praise the Lord, 3,000 professed faith in Jesus today. And... 2,735 have also committed to baptism. Let's give the Lord a hand. No, 3,000 were baptized. 3,000 professed faith in Christ. The other way of saying it is to say those who were saved were baptized. Those who were saved were baptized. Not just any. Those who were saved. Why do I stress it that way? Well, in part because there are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that baptizing infants of Christian parents is something good to do. And from this passage right here, they will often cite verse 39. Take a look at that. 
where Peter says, the promise is for you and for your children. And so some would say, if the promise is for our children, then the sign of the promise is also for our children. That's baptism now. Well, I disagree. We, we don't baptize infants at Desert Springs, though we are friends and respect many people who do. But let me show you why from this passage, it doesn't lead to infant baptism. You see, in verse 39, the promise is for you and your children. What's, out, what's after that? And all who are far off. Well, that now says a little too much. Not just to the kids of Christians, but the promise is for all who are far off. So verse 39 can't be used to support infant baptism unless it also supports mass surprise adult baptisms, which no one believes in, at least not since the Crusades. They did it then. Notice the next part of it. The promise is for you and your children, as many as the Lord our God calls to himself. You see, the promise is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the sign of our salvation. It's proof, or not proof, it's a mark that the Lord has called to himself. But no conservative evangelical Presbyterians that I know believe that every kid who's baptized is called to heaven and to God and is saved. No, they, they will need to prove whether it's real or not. Even more clear is verse 41, it's those who received his word that were baptized. Now that doesn't mean that there's no benefit growing up in a Christian home. 1 Corinthians 7 goes on to deal with this and explains that it's better to have even one Christian parent than to have none. There's great benefit in growing up in a Christian home. But whether they get the mark of this covenant that symbolizes forgiveness is another thing. And it's not in this passage. It's those who received the word that were baptized and then they were added to their number, verse, one, verse 41. What does that mean? They were added. Well, they were overtly, publicly and continually identifying themselves with these specific Jesus followers. They weren't added to a role in heaven that was written before the foundation of the world. They're not added merely to a universal church. They weren't added to salvation. That happened when they believed. They were added to a church, this first church in Jerusalem. They became members now, some Christians don't like those words members or membership. Some would say membership is not in the Bible. And that word membership isn't in the Bible. I agree, but it's actually not a bad word to describe what we do see in the Bible. In Acts chapter 5, you got the word join. Join, that's pretty close to member, membership. Think of the analogies that are used for the church in the New Testament. It's a body, parts attached to the whole, identifiable parts. It's a, a family. It's a flock. You know what families and flocks do? They count. 
That's what I did when I had little kids. One, two, three, four. All right, let's go. We got them. One, two, three, four. We, we always counted. We, it's, it's what you do. It's what shepherds do. I got 100. If one's gone, I'm going to leave 99 and go after the one. Counting doesn't matter so much, except it represents real people, real souls, real souls that are hopefully shepherded and covenanted together with each other. Hebrews 13 talks about how pastors will give an account for those under their care. So I ask you, who's given an account for your soul like Hebrews 13 talks about? What church have you overtly identified with and committed to? And do they know that they've actually committed to you as well? You need to let them know. You need to let them know that you're in they not only were added, they were committed. And the group was committed to them. That's not just attendance then, is it? It's not just occasionally showing up then. But neither is it simply being on a church's membership role in thinking that that's what the Bible requires of you. No, they were added, and that was just the beginning. Then they devoted themselves, verse 42, Literally, they continually were devoting themselves to. Now, verse 42, the rest of it, is going to tell us what they were committed to. And it will tell us in quick bullet points, four of them. So here's how this passage works, I think. Verse 42 gives us four quick priorities of the church. And then verse 43 to 47, the rest of it, gives us a portrait of those priorities. It's sketched out. It's played out with a little bit more color in detail after. But let's start with the priorities. So number two, four priorities of the church. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Let's take each of those one at a time. Apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? Well, in a sense, we've already gotten a glimpse of it from earlier in Acts chapter 2. When Peter preached, he also taught. Apostolic teaching is Christ-empowered, Christ, a spirit-empowered, Christ-focused, Bible-filled teaching and preaching that pleads Peter's sermon in Acts 2 was, of course, to unbelievers at that time. They weren't Christians yet, and so it had a specific address, a specific point and appeal. But what he did with the scriptures in pointing to Christ through the Old Testament is something that the apostles would need, no doubt, to continue to do for this church in the days and months and years and decades that followed. Remember how after the resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them how the Old Testament was really all about him. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures according to Luke 24. Well, that's what Peter is kind of doing in his Acts 2 sermon. And again, though it was to unbelievers, this is what biblical preaching is. It's showing how this problem is solved by Christ, proved by the scriptures. Now, because of this, 
we probably shouldn't make too great of a divide between preaching to believers and unbelievers. Let me unpack that for a little bit here. Look down at verse 46, where it says, day by day they were attending the temple together and in their homes. So they met publicly and privately. They met all together as a big group and in smaller groups. They went to the temple. I don't think they went to the temple the same way they always did since they were little kids. I think they knew and understand what Jesus was getting at when he said, his body's the new temple. His people are a temple. And when he gave hints about that temple coming down, I think they knew it was coming. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches a long sermon, and he acknowledges God's purposes for the temple long ago, but God has never dwelt in buildings. He implies this thing's not needed anymore. It's, it's coming down. It had its purpose, but it's done. And that's when they picked up stones to kill him. So, so the early disciples going to the temple here was probably not out of old religious habit. Most likely it was practical. They're a big group. Where are you going to meet? No one's got a house for 3,000 people. And so in Acts 3 and in Acts 5, we find out that they regularly met together at the temple in a section called Solomon's Portico, Solomon's Porch. It was this giant pavilion where thousands could meet, where teaching could be heard, and no doubt these very first church-wide meetings were taking place there. And no doubt as well, curious passers-by would listen in, would wander over, would listen some more. No doubt, as Peter and the other apostles were teaching believers, they were also addressing unbelievers. As they were showing believers how Christ is the center of God's plan, there's an easy evangelistic turn to those who haven't yet come to believe it. Now, that's much like a Sunday morning here, I hope. I'm mostly talking to believers, but acknowledging unbelievers. I'm mostly talking to those who are the church, acknowledging that there are some with us who are not yet truly with us, if you know what I mean. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're here. We, we want to patiently walk with you towards Christ. We want to answer questions you might have. We want to we define things that we clumsily don't define very well in a sermon or something. Let us know how we can help. We want to address unbelievers who are visiting with us, and yet we realize this is a meeting of the church, and the church needs to be taught and needs to be built up, and, and they today still need to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. We need to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Think of how much they had to learn here in Acts 2. Their world got flipped upside down with Peter's sermon and the Holy Spirit bringing it home to bear in their hearts. Now, it's like starting over in kindergarten. Wait, tell me again, two plus two really does equal four, does it? Because I don't know. I... I, I 
Man, there's so much for them to, to take in. Everything that we know is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that and more was in the memory of these apostles. They were teaching what Jesus did, what he said, what he was like, what it means, and how to live in light of it. There was so much to teach. And together they were devoted to hearing it taught and giving it out. I think it's interesting that apostles' teaching is first on this list of four priorities in verse 42. I don't think that's accidental. I don't think there's a ranking. So, you know, number four, prayer. I mean, it didn't even make the bronze. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's something foundational to teaching here because it shapes the others. It fuels the others. We know from experience that prayer goes awry apart from scriptural instruction and scriptural models. And that's where we turn today, the scriptures. How do we devote ourselves to apostles' teaching when there are no longer any apostles on this earth and haven't been since those 12 well, they wrote stuff down for us. We have an apostolic record. Everyone who writes in the New Testament is either an apostle or an apostolic representative with an apostolic wingman. So Mark isn't an apostle. That's all right. Peter is his source. Luke isn't an apostle. That's all right. He got firsthand eyewitnesses, and he traveled along with Apostle Paul for a good long while. We must be devoted to this book. We must open this book like we are this morning, like we, like we do in our homes day by day. We must give ourselves to the apostles' teaching. It's accurate. It's true. Praise God they wrote it down. Are you devoted to it? That's the question. Are you devoted to fellowship? The second thing here. What does fellowship mean? Well, in a word, I think it means sharing. Fellowship is sharing of different sorts. Think of what they shared. They shared faith. They shared the gospel. They shared gospel benefits, gospel promises. These people share Jesus. They share the Holy Spirit. That's a bond. They were sharing life together, day by day, house to house. They shared time together. They shared meals, according to verse 46. They shared their stuff. We'll come to that in our next section in just a bit. They shared prayer. They shared, they shared praise. They shared in the gospel mission. So Paul can write to the Philippians, thanking them for their financial support, and say, I'm thankful to God for your partnership in the gospel or fellowship in the gospel the same word that's fellowship not occasional church-wide potlucks or cookies in the foyer or handshakes after a service or or super bowl parties with christians all those are fine and fellowship may actually break out in one of those contexts but fellowship like the bible talks about it is overt consciousness of what we Christians share and overt expressions of sharing with joy 
even at great sacrifice. It's overt consciousness of what we share, overt expressions of sharing. Are you devoted to fellowship? What would it look like for you to be devoted to fellowship? Being in a community group? Being honest in a community group? Looking out for others on a Sunday morning, coming early? Staying a little longer just to talk? Not because just words exchanged between Christians is fellowship, but truth is, encouragement is, accountability, that's part of it. What about giving? What about sacrifice for those in need? There's much of fellowship that we can think about and seek to apply as we try to devote ourselves to it, as with the breaking of bread. Now, it isn't terribly clear whether breaking of bread here is just an expression for common meals or whether it's the Lord's Supper. Breaking bread can mean common meals. I think that's what it refers to in verse 46, breaking bread in their homes. It can also refer to the Lord's Supper according to 1 Corinthians 10, the bread that we break. Okay, it's breaking of bread because that's what Jesus did when he first instituted this. He broke the bread and gave it to his disciples and then said, this is my body which is broken for you. Now I tend to think that here in verse 42, this breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper. The ESV has it right when it words it like this. It's wordy, but wordy on purpose. It's the breaking of bread. There's a definite article there. Whereas in verse 46, it just speaks of breaking bread without a definite article. That doesn't make an airtight case, I know, but uh, I think it could be an indication of Luke trying to distinguish between the breaking of bread and, and breaking bread together. Another argument for verse 42 referring to the Lord's Supper is that it seems surprising if it's not mentioned in Acts 2 at all, with all these foundational things and priorities being mentioned, baptism, faith, and prayer, and communion together, fellowship together, all these things, it'd be surprising if the Lord's Supper were not among these. Of course, I won't die on the hill of verse 42 referring to the Lord's Supper, but, but I think it's referring to that. Let me preach it as such. Are you devoted to the Lord's Supper? Our church, we, uh, we do once a month Wednesday night Lord's Supper services. And that's actually a way in which we're trying to devote ourselves to the Lord's Supper. You see, we're trying to give ourselves to it. We're trying to set aside extra time for it. It's not a tack on to a single service that we're simply rushing through. No, we, we want to think on the cross again, think on our sin again, think of his great grace for us and partake of this meal which represents his body and his blood. I, I encourage you, if you're not devoted to taking the Lord's Supper with us on Wednesday, that you'd even go to the extent of altering your schedule in order to do so. Prayers is last of these priorities in verse 42. This is what they were doing in the upper room while they waited for the Holy Spirit to arrive back in chapter one. With one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. 
What would it look like to devote yourself to prayer? Well, I don't know. I know for me it probably means being more intentional, more thoughtful, more regular, and more serious and passionate in my praying than I am. With all of these priorities, we could say we're always going to do less than we should. We could always do better than we've been doing, but prayer to me stands out as one that stings the most. And yet, on the other hand, as a church, we should be mindful of how much prayer fills different things we do, saturates. I mean, it's involved in not only our corporate worship on Sunday morning, but as the youth meet and as Sunday school happens for kids, prayers are, are being made. We, we teach classes uh, from time to time on prayer. We, we, we pray in our elders' meetings and in staff meetings, and we, we pray in song when we sing together so often. Many of us pray in our homes with, you know, a, a there's a prayer app you can get where you can keep track of prayer needs or maybe you're on our email prayer list and so you get these requests come in and you're, and you're praying for these things as they come to mind. All these are good things. We could do more, yes. But praise God, prayer is really touching almost everything we do as it should. One way we're attempting to be more devoted to prayer in this calendar year is by having one or two of our Lord's Supper services more seriously devoted to corporate prayer. We'll tell you more about that in the weeks and months to come. These are the priorities of the church, but then Luke turns to a portrait of the church. The priorities are like bones, and then Luke hangs some muscle or flesh on these bones. And we can cruise through this a little bit more quickly because we've already laid out from these priorities what they mean and something of what this looks like. But here's Luke's portrait of what it looks like. Verse 43, awe came upon every soul. Awe, fear, wonder, awe. The Psalms sometimes talk about trembling with joy. What is that? I don't know, but when I'm close to it, it's wonderful. You know, it's like being near Aslan. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. Our, our God is grand. He's big. You get a sense of God's grandeur at times. You, you marvel at your sinfulness and, and his mercy. And you might get close to trembling with joy or having awe. Now notice awe is the proper response to both extraordinary things like miracles and ordinary things like just praying, just taking the Lord's Supper. If you look at verse 43, you might see that there's awe mentioned and then it's followed by wonders and signs that come after it. And so you might think, oh, I can see how they would be awestruck if the apostles are doing miracles all around them. Yeah, but the awe is sandwiched between the extraordinary of miracles and the ordinary, somewhat ordinary, of Bible studies, of preaching and hearing and praying, taking the Lord's Supper and just being together. Awe came upon every soul. 
And yet there were wonders and signs that no doubt they were awed by. These were signs done by the apostles, it says. They're signs, which means they signify something. They teach something. And in this case, they teach about the apostles' authority, their veracity. These are like certificates of authenticity from Jesus, showing the world that their words are Jesus' words, and they are on that on that planet doing Jesus's work. That doesn't mean that miracles only happen through apostles and thus happen no more. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying Luke intends for us to connect signs done by the apostles. This is Jesus verifying these men. And then verse 44 and 45, we come to the section here where they're selling possessions and distributing as any had need. They had all things in common. And many of us get to a passage like this and wonder if this is some sort of Christian communism. Like everyone sold everything they had, they pulled it together, and then they distributed it equally with 3,120 different individuals, they split up all they had. Well, that's not what's happening here, and there are several good clues to indicate that it's not happening, because look at verse 45, they sold and distributed as any had need. So this was meeting needs, specific needs. Verse 46, they shared food with generous hearts. Communism is not motivated by generous hearts. Verse 45, they met in each other's homes. So apparently, they kept their homes. Apparently, they still believed in what we call private property. In fact, turn over to Acts chapter 5 quickly. Acts chapter 5, here's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which we'll get to in some weeks ahead. You might remember that God killed Ananias, but not because he held something back it's because he lied about how much he gave. So verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart. You've not lied to men, but to God. So, Ananias was killed because he lied about how much he gave or didn't give, not because he owned something, neither because he sold something and kept some of it. And yet, before you say, oh, good, I feel really good about my little giving and my materialism. Don't forget in Acts 2, they had all things in common. That phrase, all things in common. Again, not, not communism, where it's pooled and distributed equally, but mi casa su casa, right? I mean, you know, mi taco, you taco, su taco. <laughs> Many guys in the, in the church, you know, we share tools with each other. It's mi tool, su tool, or, or more likely, su tool, mi tool. <laughs> Can I come get that? Yeah. We have all things in common. We're together. And as a need arose in this church, 
those who had extra gave from their extra to meet a need. Like when a body part on our body has something it needs, and see there's an itch on this arm. This arm will, will not deliberate about itching it or scratching it. You, you fix it. You don't say, I'm not working for that lazy arm. You can get your own itches. Rub it on something like this. No, you, you, you reach out, you do it. It's instinctual and there's something like that going on. Not that it was always easy. Not that they always had pure motives. Not that they never deliberated. They're sinners like us. But generally speaking, they met the need. They were glad to do it. They were worshiping together in the temple and in homes. They were sharing meals left and right with glad and generous hearts. They were practicing what the New Testament later on calls hospitality, which is commanded of Christians. Showing hospitality is commanded. Open up your home. Have people over with a meal. It's amazing how something so fundamental to church life and gospel living is really so simple. Oh, I know, they, they may not like your stew or, you know, well, they might, you know, break something or, I don't know, they, they have dryer sheets on and they, it, it smell, I can smell something on them and I, I don't know if I like that. You see, they were together. They practiced hospitality. They shared food together and they were glad to do it with generous hearts. They were praising God together through it all. Praising God. Now lastly, we have to talk about the propagation of the church. We've considered the pathway into the church. We've talked about the priorities of that church. That It focuses on doctrine and fellowship and breaking bread together in prayers. We've seen a portrait of the church, a beautiful portrait of joy and kindness and compassion and sharing and praise and worship and learning. And now fourth, the propagation of the church. You see, verse 47 says, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is, of course, the propagation of the gospel, but it's the church's propagation of the gospel. It was growing. It was multiplying. It was progressing. Jesus is building his church. How? Well, through partly the public testimony of the church. They were in some ways a, a counterculture. They lived with one another, not, not, not like totally, not like roommates, but I mean, they were in each other's homes, they were sharing each other's stuff, they were meeting needs left and right. These are happy people, these are praising God people. These are people, yes, who have their burdens and their trials, but they're trusting God in the midst of it. There's some measure of joy. This, it, looks, it looks strange or supernatural. They had favor with all the people. Now, favor won't always be the response from the culture around us. Not in Acts and not today in Albuquerque. Sometimes we're an aroma of death to those who are around us. And sometimes we're an aroma or fragrance of life to those around us. 
Have you ever thought about the, the fact that the church is itself a witness or a testimony to the world around it? Not just when it verbalizes it, but, but holiness, the marks of being different, love for the unlovely, diversity, all these things say something to the culture around us. I mean, Jesus said, they will know that you're mine by your love for one another. We're to be salt and light in this world. That's not just for individuals, but we're to be salt together and light together. No doubt the gospel was propagated through personal witness as well. The public testimony of the whole church through individuals and their personal witness as well. Apostles were foundational, of course. They were a unique witness. But don't think this is 3,000 bystanders and a couple of apostolic preachers. I mean, as they joined the Jesus thing, they joined the Jesus mission. How can we not speak what we've heard and seen? And so no doubt people are going to their homes after this day of Pentecost and saying, you're not going to believe what I heard. Guess what I do now? I follow Jesus. And the gospel was also propagated through public preaching. Public preaching. It's in Acts 2. It's in Acts 3. It's in Acts 4. It's in Acts 5. It's in Acts 7. Public preaching. Now, I'm not suggesting that the application for us is that we walk across the street to the park and I stand on a picnic bench and I begin preaching. We could do that, I suppose. But this actually is public preaching. As unbelievers come in, they sit under the gospel preached. Yes, I know some things go over their head. Yes, I know that they're going to remark about how long that sermon was. That's okay. Let me encourage you to reinvigorate or reorient yourself towards inviting non-Christians to come to church with you in view of the gospel. What an amazing opportunity it is for them to watch Christians sing with tears, to pray with passion, to hug in sincerity to listen to God's word. Look, what a weird scene this is from my vantage point. One guy is talking, hundreds of people are sitting and listening. Not because, oh, I'm clever or, or because I have some special authority in myself. No, this is the word of God. You're here to hear God. You need God. That, that's something supernatural. That's just strange. This is, this is far more incredible than your average TED talk, partly because it's about 10 times longer. I'd encourage you to invite Christians, uh, non-Christians to come with you. Take them to lunch afterwards. Say to them, well, that was weird, wasn't it? I know, I know it's weird, I know. I know what you must be thinking, but, but it's wonderfully weird, let me tell you. I was not long ago in a, a steam room in a gym, and a guy was in there, and he was mad about politics, and he was going off about politics, and, and he kept going, and then he said, Jesus Christ! 
And I said, well, that's the answer. <laughs> I mean, that's really the answer, isn't it? And he walked out. That's it. He walked, I'm out of here, you know. And you don't get a hearing in the steam room. But people will sit and listen. Isn't that amazing? People will come with you to church. Not all. But some people will come with you to church and listen to God's word preached. And perhaps some will be saved and added to our number. Oh, we're not after a certain church size. We're not after a certain number of attendants or members. But where these numbers represent souls, we want them added. And why not with us? We want them added and the Lord must do it. If or when the Lord adds to our number, we must say, the Lord has done it. It's not a clever preacher. It's not clever one-on-one -on -one witnessing. It's not your tactics where you can checkmate them into belief. No, the Lord. We're completely dependent on him. So I close with just two quick questions. Do you have this Acts 2 DNA in you? Oh, I don't mean do you look exactly like this. None of us do. This is a, a brilliant snapshot of a church with yet not many flaws because it's supposed to just glow so that we're inspired by it. I don't mean perfection, but I mean is there something in you that pulls you toward others and pulls you towards teaching and truth and pulls you towards prayer. Not as much as you should, yes, I know, but, but do you really love God? You're simply going through the motions, thinking you're safe because you said, say you're a Christian? Is there something supernatural here? Is there something deep down in Holy Spirit implanted within you? If not, today, repent, believe. Trust Christ, be saved, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Second question, are you devoting yourself to seeing these things manifested in your life and in this church and in others more and more? What do you need to devote yourselves to more? What, what needs to go away in your life so that other things in Acts 2 can fit in? What in your life just doesn't fit with this picture as you put your life in Acts 2 up alongside each other? What priorities, what commitments do you have that right now wrongly trump devoting yourselves to doctrine, to prayer, to fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, to others? Well, let's pray for God's help to know what we need to change. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you reign over all. We thank you that you have spoken to us in this, your word. We pray for your help to understand our need for grace. We pray for your help, Lord, to plant within us power to live like people born of God. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit within us. And we pray for wisdom to know what to better devote ourselves to, what to remove, what perhaps even to repent of this morning. May your lordship, Lord Jesus, fill our minds and our hearts and this place 
Fill us with awe as we stand together and sing about how your name is high over all. Help us, we pray. Amen.